Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Wrong? Did I? I no, hold on. Is it, ah, there we go. Woohoo! Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so glad that you're here joining us at OCC today, whether you're live in person here in the room, if you're watching us online. As Forrest said, it's coming up on Easter, right? We're getting really close. Folks understand there's all kinds of events happening. And so we're going to do something that we've done over the last couple of years here. We kind of make Easter a two-part holiday. We start celebrating here today, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. And so this is really kind of a two-part message. We're going to introduce Easter today, at least share part of the good news, kind of the toughest part to hear of the good news, with the idea that we want to prepare our hearts to be inviting our friends to come back and hear the complete good news next week. We want folks to have the chance to hear and respond to the gospel. So that's kind of why we do this in two parts. We're going to talk today about the events that lead up to Easter. And Palm Sunday has a lot of that with Jesus, you know, entering Jerusalem for that final week of his life. And the whole idea is we can't stop thinking about Easter. It's a big, big deal for us, not just on the church calendar, on the calendar, right? People celebrate this holiday. I wonder if everybody is clear on what we're actually celebrating. That's kind of the question, right? I know it's not everybody. I heard a story one time about a, a school teacher, and she was talking to her young class, kindergarten, first grade class or whatever, and, and she was asking them, hey, we got a big Easter holiday coming up. Can anybody tell me what do we celebrate at Easter? And the kids are all excited, and one little kid raises her hand, and she goes, is that the holiday where we have the tree in the house and, and all the presents and the decorations? Yeah, like, no, <laughs> that's Christmas. You're so close. Yeah. And another little kid raises her hand, is that the holiday? Is Easter where we stay up late and, and have picnics and shoot fireworks? And, uh, it's Independence Day. It's 4th of July. Does anybody know what Easter is? What do we celebrate at Easter? And one little girl in the back, she kind of raised her hand. She goes, is that when Jesus died? And the teacher was like, very good, Veronica, that's it. That's what we celebrate at Easter. Can you tell us more about Easter? And now the girl was kind of excited. She goes, well, yeah, uh, we celebrate that Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again, right? And when he came out of the grave, he saw his shadow and there were six more weeks of winter. <laughs> so close. <laughs> Almost got it, right? Today, we're gonna talk about what we actually can and should focus on when we think about Easter. And spoiler alert, it's gonna be Jesus, right? We're gonna talk about Jesus. In the Bible, there are four gospel accounts that tell us the story of his life and death, his burial and resurrection. In three of those four accounts, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you look at it, fully one-third of the content is devoted to this last week of Jesus' life. Two-thirds is about the 18 months, three years, really, from, from when he started his ministry. And then a lot of it is this, this last week. If you read the Gospel of John, I'm not kidding, fully half of it, half of the Gospel of John is about this last week. Predating even the Gospel accounts, one of the earliest things written about Christ in the Bible was from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's one of the earliest writings. Likely, 1 Thessalonians and Galatians were probably written first. But this is one of the first things that we see. I want to share it with you. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, you ready? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
So that's what we're going to talk about today, Christ dying for our sins. We're going to lead up to this, and next week we're going to bring this all home when we remember, as little Veronica did, that Christ didn't stay dead, right? He rose again, whether he saw a shadow, unimportant, right? He ascended into heaven. That's big news for next week. Today, we're going to spend some time focusing on the fact that he died for our sins. This will not be a feel-good message. There won't be a lot of laughs. I'm going to promise you that. But Paul says it's of first importance. What does that mean? There's nothing more important for us to know and learn in the history of mankind than this simple fact, Christ died for our sins. So let's start at the ground level. Who is Paul talking about? This man we call by the name of Jesus. Jesus is actually a derivative of the Old Testament named Joshua. Jesus is important. It simply means God is my salvation. That's what the name means. God is my savior. And so when we refer to him as Jesus Christ, Paul called him Christ here. Christ is actually his title. It's not part of his name. Christ is derived from the Greek word Christos. It means Messiah or chosen one. If we would say it correctly, we would say he is Jesus the Christ. He's a real man. Lived and breathed and walked on this planet about 2,000 years ago. And the first 30 years of his life, he lived in relative obscurity. We know very little about those early years. But oh boy, then he went on a three-year mission trip, right? <laughs> And the world has not been the same since. He accomplished more in that tiny three-year window than anyone else in the history of the planet. Now, where did it begin for him? We can read the Bible. We can correlate some history. We know that he was born to a poor rural family, likely peasants, right? His dad was a construction worker. They did not grow up wealthy. They didn't live in a big city. Jesus never got married. He never had kids. He did not have a life of comfort. He walked nearly everywhere he went, and they hadn't invented those sweet memory foam shoes yet, so he was walking in knockoff Birkenstocks. It was not that kind of life, right? Because of that, he never traveled likely more than 200 miles away from his home. Nobody walks that far. The religious leaders of his day, they were constantly falsely accusing him. He felt dealt with incredible opposition all the time. He was running for his life in constant danger and harm, reputation always being assaulted. He dealt with demonic opposition. He was stolen from. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. The way we tell stories, a man like this would not have the greatest impact of any person in history, but he has. The Bible, which tells the story of Jesus, it's the best-selling book of all time. It is the most widely translated book of all time. It is the most impactful book of all time. You know the inventor of the printing press, Johannes Gutenberg? Do you know why he invented it? <laughs> so he could print the Bible and distribute it so everybody could have a copy. And so when we're reading this incredible story, this is where we get the foundation for what a lot of people refer to, I think rather incorrectly, as the Christian religion, right? We call it that. It'd be more accurate to call it the Christian relationship because it's the story of our personal faith. And that's what makes Christ following different from any other religion. You talk about some other religions, they have headquarters, they have places where you go. Christ followers have a person, we have a real man who can come meet with us anywhere. In other religions, you have to travel to a holy destination. You have to face a certain way to pray. For Christ's followers, we know that God came near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Once we profess faith in him, once we begin that eternal relationship with him, we receive his Holy Spirit. And so literally, he's with us all the time. That's the kind of impact Jesus has on people personally. And it's broader than that. He has an impact on history as we know it. Dear goodness, our calendar reflects Jesus. We, we refer to times B.C., before Christ. 
And A.D. stands for Anno Domini. It means the year of our Lord. But we can put two and two together, and we know the year of our Lord means the year he died, the time after that. So we recognize this. It has a huge impact in history. We celebrate years after he died. We understand he died. And so now we are witness to, we who make up the local churches, we're part of the greatest singular movement of any kind in the history of the world if we are Christ followers. It's huge. Over the course of time, nations have come and gone. But the church of Jesus Christ has remained. It will remain until he comes back. And he's coming back. That group that makes up Christ followers is diverse. I was studying this week. More languages, more nations, more people groups following Jesus than any other political, military, philosophical, ideological leader in the history of the world. Jesus is above all. He's without precedent. He's without peer by any standard, even secular standards. He is the dominant figure of global culture. Without us having a single picture, nobody had an iPhone back in the day. There's no pictures of Jesus, and yet everybody recognizes his likeness, right? We get it. I remember playing in a racquetball tournament in college, and the guy I was going to play next had this shirt with a picture of Jesus on it. There's a bunch of us standing out there waiting to go on courts, and a guy looked over at that guy's shirt. He's like, dude, I love your shirt. I love Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) I didn't know Jesus at the time. Everybody in the group groaned. It's like, that's not Hendrix. That's Jesus. People recognize Jesus all around the world. And most people know that he died. History teaches us he died on a cross. So as we prepare ourselves to celebrate Easter next week. Today, let's talk about the cross in some detail. We're going to have to go a little outside of the Bible for some of this because the Bible doesn't give us that many details about crucifixion in general. It talks a lot about Christ's crucifixion, but not about crucifixion in general. And I believe that's because in the ancient world, it was such a common practice that everybody knew about it. Everybody had seen it. And once you saw it, <laughs> you never forgot it. It's horrible. Daryl Bach was one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said crucifixion was like state-sponsored terror. It would be the same today if you had a a jihadist nation that that broadcast a beheading on the Internet. They do that for two reasons, right? They do that to install fear and terror in people and to punish and shame people. They're essentially openly declaring, don't believe like this person believes. Don't behave like this person behaves or you're going to suffer the way this person suffered. That's what crucifixion was. That form of execution was actually invented by the Persians. The Persians started doing this 800 years before Christ. It was a way to slowly and painfully kill people. Romans liked it. The the Persians basically would impale you on a pole and stick the pole in the ground. You died pretty quick. The Romans came along and perfected it. The Romans were the ones who added the crossbar. That's why we celebrate the cross today. They added the bar because they thought, wouldn't it be great if we hung people and then drove nails through their wrists, through their feet, through those sensitive nerve centers in their body? That'd be a way to inflict more pain. And that's what they were going for. The Roman soldiers who were there at the execution, at the crucifixion, they would gamble amongst themselves. They'd place bets to see who could inflict the most pain and keep people alive as long as possible. Crucifixion is a slow death. The reason is that the thing you die from literally is asphyxiation. As you hang on the cross, the weight of your body drags you down and your lungs collapse. You can't bring in air. 
And so people would be on the cross and they'd pass out. But we have this will to live and so they'd come to and what would be? Would push themselves up on the way to the nails to fill their lungs and get another breath and then collapse and writhe in pain again. They have accounts of people living nine days on the cross. Just this horrific death. All this was done publicly to shame the person dying and to instill fear in the people who saw it. Crucifixions were performed in public places on purpose. Can you imagine going to the grocery store and coming out in the parking lot, there'd be a crucifixion for you to see? Go to Little League game on Tuesday night and you come out, your grandparents watching your kids play and they're in the parking lot as a crucifixion? That's what they did on purpose. More people could see it. And I believe this fact has been misconstrued, but in artwork we see the crosses and they're all very, very tall. The reality seems to be they weren't that tall. They were actually designed so that people could hang not much above eye level. So that as you walked by in the parking lot and saw that crucifixion, you could see the anguish, you could see the pain on that person's face. As I was studying this week, one fact seemed to support this, although it rarely occurred. Women were hardly ever crucified. If they were crucified, they were crucified backwards. They were placed on the cross backwards so that people wouldn't have to look at that look of anguish on a woman's face. There's actually no word in the English language that was suitable to describe how intense the depth of suffering. So we created a word in English. You know the word, it's excruciating literally means from the cross. That's the way Christ died on the cross, excruciating. God's word tells us the night before he was crucified, Jesus was praying because he was so anxious about going to the cross. And I don't think it was from this physical pain that he was gonna endure. I believe it was out of his concern for this cup of wrath he was gonna drink, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. If you read in the gospel accounts, the scene unfolded in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane was there on the Mount of Olives. It's just a place where olives were grown, where they produced olive oil. And so I think symbolically, we're supposed to get this picture of olives being pressed and the oil running out. And that's kind of what happens to Jesus in the garden. He's being pressed. He's anxious about the cross to this notion that his soul is being pressed. And what comes out of Jesus is not oil. What is it? We've read the account. It's blood. Drops of blood. He sweats blood. It's a medical condition called hemotidrosis. It's a real condition. But it only affects people who are under the most extreme duress and distress. And that's what Jesus is experiencing. And at that time, his friend Judas shows up. And this is a huge setup because Judas shows up with religious leaders and political leaders of the day. And those guys didn't agree about anything. <laughs> they agreed about this one thing, Jesus has to die. Their partnership here, their treatment of Jesus shows us just how sinful people are. See, Jesus was different from me and you. He's different from us because he's holy, he's set apart. People back in his day thought there was something horrible about that. Well, he's not like us, so what should we do? Well, let's kill him. Folks, we're not supposed to kill the people who are different from us. We're supposed to love them in spirit and in truth. It's not what we see in the garden. Folks show up to arrest Jesus. They take him to be scourged. 
And this is just an absolutely grisly thing. And if you're aware of how this worked, they would take someone, they'd place them over like a wooden standard or over a boulder so they'd have to stretch out their back. Those back muscles would be stretched. The skin on your back would be taut. And then someone would come with a device called a, a flagrum or a cat of nine tails, depending on which historian you read. It's just a long leather whip. And at the end of the leather whip strands, they embedded pieces of bone or metal or rocks because they wanted to inflict as much pain as they possibly could. Many commentators say that the soldier who was swinging the flagrum, they'd have to get him drunk beforehand because a sober person couldn't handle it. It was too violent. It was too bloody. Jim Caviezel is the actor who played Jesus in the Passion of the Christ movies. And I got a chance, Christine and I were to, conference one time and I heard him speak right after the movie came out and he explained the scene where they were filming the scourging of Jesus and, and there was an actor swinging the flagrum and there was a prop guy who was supposed to come in as he swung it and insert this leather barrier over Jim Caviezel's back so the whip wouldn't hit him. Two times the prop guy didn't get it there in time. Two times Jim Caviezel got hit with the whip. Both times they had to take a two-day break from filming he was in that much pain. Caviezel got whipped. He got a two-day vacation. Jesus did. He endured. And after that beating, when he no doubt would have been losing a lot of blood, when there was damage to his internal organs, he's yanked up from his prone position, and they pound a crown of thorns on his head. Want to mock him as the king of kings, the lord of lords. In the midst of that suffering, they would have had him take his own crossbar and carry it. He would have had to drag this log, it probably weighed about 100 pounds, through the streets of Jerusalem. Again, so people will see, folks coming out of shop, people going about their daily life, he would have had to take this journey through Jerusalem. You can go on what they believe was Christ's journey today. Guides will take you if you go on the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. You can see where Jesus would have gone through these cobblestone streets. Weakened as he was, it's no wonder that he needed help to actually get the crossbar to the scene of the crucifixion. Romans, at least, were environmentally conscious. They, they recycled. He would have been carrying a recycled wooden beam. It had been used for somebody else's execution the week before. Probably would have had fresh nail holes in it. Blood, sweat, tears from someone who was crucified the week before. He's got to carry this on his bloody back. Finally, he arrives at the place of crucifixion. And before they take his life, they try to take his dignity. They spit on him. They curse him. They jeer him. And finally, they nail him to the cross. I don't know why I'd never thought about that before this week, but in studying, Jesus was a carpenter. He'd driven a bunch of nails. Not like this. To hold the weight of the body, they would have been the equivalent of, of railroad spikes that we have today. And, and you'd lay on that cross and they'd drive them through the base of your wrist and through your feet that were crossed over, through those sensitive nerve centers because they knew in doing that, they would cause you to violently spasm. You'd jerk uncontrollably. It was that much pain. And then once they have you fixed to the cross, they'd lift that cross up, they'd drop it in a hole. You'd be there just about at eye level. Soldiers there placing 
bets on how long you're going to last. Your body's shaking violently, and Jesus looks out at the crowd, and who does he see? But his mother. You've had a child, you know, you're so excited as they're born, and you're so excited if they're healthy, and you count. little fingers and toes. Here Mary is looking on what they're doing to Jesus' fingers and his toes. Ultimately, Jesus dies on the cross. To ensure that he's dead, they have a Roman soldier there who takes a spear and jabs it up under your rib cage. Puncture the heart sack. We know this is true because Scripture says... Water and blood flowed from his side where he was punctured. Jesus died of a broken heart. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. The entire point of crucifixion was death. The entire job of those guys there to perform that task was to make sure he died. It's the part of the Easter story I don't want us to forget. That's why we're spending so much time focusing on it today to prepare for what we're going to hear with the good news next week. But as we wrestle with this message today, as we're talking about graphically Jesus dying on the cross, the, the question is why? Why did he have to die? We saw it earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. It was for our sin. Oh, no, Pastor James, we're not going to talk about sin, are we? Yeah. When it comes to talking about sin, we have to remember some things. God is a God of law, right? God's the creator of all things. We are not. People are not the creators. We're not the redeemers. We're not the saviors. All those actions describe God. God is perfect. So there is not now, nor will there ever be a need to change or edit his laws. That's not a real popular opinion for some people today. We, We would like to have culture drive our laws. We'd like to have politicians dictate our laws. No. For me, what matters when it comes to the law is the word of God. Amen? That's the thing that lasts. Everyone and everything is going to be judged by the standard in God's word. God's word is filled with God's laws. The Bible teaches us that sin occurs when? When we break God's laws. We don't like to talk about sin. I know that. If we absolutely have to talk about sin, we talk about sin in big picture terms, right? We talk about systemic sin. We don't like to talk about personal sin. I sin. That's not a fun conversation at dinner parties, right? If we do focus on personal sin, we always want to point at somebody else. Did you know that person committed that sin? I also commit that sin, but I've never been caught. Let's talk about them. They commit that sin, right? That's how we like to do that. Here's the problem with that. If we're Christ followers... We're reading God's word. It talks a lot about sin, a lot. Uses words like rebellion, folly, madness, treason, death, hatred, spiritual adultery, missing the mark, wandering from the path, idolatry, irrationality, pride, selfishness, blindness, deafness, a hard heart, a stiff neck, delusion, self-worship. That's just for starters. Before we go pointing fingers, that's talking about me. That's talking about us, every one of us. Scripture teaches us this, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So if we're talking about sin, let's get in this. We have to address what sin is, right? Sin is both a condition and an action. Sin is a condition that's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. It's an inherited nature. It's imputed to us. So sin isn't just what we do, the actions we exhibit. It's also who we are, right? It's our condition. So sin affects not just our nature, but everything about us, our will, our desires, our motives for action. Sin is both who we do and, pardon me, who we are and what we do. Old preacher D.L. Moody has a great quote. He says, our character is who we are in the dark. Well, guess what? God sees that too. Nothing and no one is hidden from God's sight. Sin includes everything. Sin includes our emotions. I don't believe there's any part of my humanness that I can fully trust apart from God. I hear well-meaning people say that sometimes. Well, I wouldn't fall prey to that because I've got a good mind, right? I've got a good heart. I'm just gonna go with my gut. I trust my gut. I, I, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> I don't trust my emotions. Every part of who we are in this life, in these bodies, is affected by our sin. And so that sin not only includes the things we do, the sins of commission, but also the things we don't do. Things we don't do that we know we should do. Those are called sins of omission. It's easier for us to grasp the sins of commission. We get that, right? I took something I shouldn't have taken. That's a bad thing. I touched somebody I shouldn't have touched, whether that's violently or in passion or lust. I say something I shouldn't say. I get angry about something I have no right to be angry about. Those are sins we commit. But there are also sin areas that occur when we don't do things that we know we should do. Those are sins of omission. If we think about it, we can recognize those as well. Most of those come when we don't love someone the way we're told to love them. We don't love our spouse the way we should. We don't love our kids the way we should. We don't love our friends the way we should. Be careful. We don't love our enemies the way we should. Those are sins of omission. We don't do that good thing that God wants us to do. So sin is both parts. It's commission when we do things which we know are wrong. It's omission where we fail to do things that we know are right. Now praise the Lord in this world, he's given us some things to save us from ourselves, to save us from one another. He's given us some areas that help regulate our sin. I've got these listed on your outline. First one is the Bible says that God puts a conscience in us. Even people who don't know Jesus, we know that there's things that are right and things that are wrong, right? That's kind of universal. We have a conscience. Sadly, we don't listen to it all the time. <laughs> this is why I don't trust my emotions. Secondly, God has given us external laws. We get that, right? There's police officers and governments and the military and lawyers and soldiers that they propose and enforce these laws. How are we doing? Everybody obey the law all the time? Don't raise your hand. Finally, there's another deterrent that God has given us to keep us from sin. We don't like to talk about this at all. It's death. We may feel that's heavy, but it's the truth. There are certain things in this life that if we do them, we run the risk of dying. We hear about this all the time on the news with celebrities, but regular people have this happen too. People die of an overdose, right? Sometimes the first time somebody tries a drug, they die of an overdose. What is that? That's death by a deterrent to keep us from sin. God has given us those three things to regulate us. Can you imagine a world where those deterrents weren't in place? Can you imagine a world with no laws, no death, no consequences? 
If you can picture that, I, mean, I think that's what an internship in hell looks like. That's a bad place, right? The world's not like that. God has provided these deterrents to regulate our sin. But that's not the only thing he's done. Ultimately, we understand. He's not just going to regulate our sin. We read 1 Corinthians 15. He sent Christ to die for our sin. So let's talk about that reality. Beyond the historical fact, the gruesome fact of Christ's crucifixion, let's move to the personal application. What does that mean for those of us who professed faith? Because Christ's death on the cross could benefit everyone, right? It only truly benefits those who have faith, those who've received that free gift of salvation. And it's because of another big theological term that I have on your outline. It's called penal substitutionary atonement, right? Talking theology is fun. Theology is a neat word. The root of that word theos just means God. Logos means study. So theology is just the study of God. I think we should do that more often. The problem we get into is we study ourselves too much. And I'm not saying we shouldn't study ourselves. There's valuable things for us to learn. But shouldn't we spend as much time studying God as we do ourselves? A couple important things we're supposed to learn in studying theology Who is God? And who does God say that I am? Those are the big ones for sure. And this is where penal substitutionary atonement comes into play. Because we read, Scripture says, all have sinned. And I fall into the all category. We all do. I know later in Romans, God's word says, the wages for sin is death. And so the reality is somebody needs to pay that debt. In God's economy, someone has to die because of sin. Now, we see the results of this in the fact that we are born separated from God, right? We have this spiritual death that manifests itself. God wants to be in eternal relationship with us, but we have these consequences of this imputed sin from our great, 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 however many times, great grandparents, Adam and Eve, right? So we experience this spiritual death. Then, as I said earlier, we also experience physical death. These old flesh cartons we live in, they give out and they die. Why? Because of sin. It's really funny if you think about it because so many of these industries spend all this time, all this effort, the pharmaceutical industry, the health and wellness industry, the vegan folks, I don't understand them, the whole food folks, all, all these groups peddling this notion of taking good care of ourselves. And, and that's an important concept. It really is. We're supposed to be stewards of the things that God gives us. But here's the deal. No matter how much we work out, no matter how healthy we eat, no matter what medicines we take, no matter what vaccines we take, we're all gonna die someday. Told you it was a feel-good message. Here's the bottom line. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ truly saves us from death. He's the one who saves us from death. We read this over and over again in the Bible. Paul writes about this a bunch. He says to live is what? Christ. To die, you ready for this, is gain. He says it's better to be absent from the body because when we're absent from this old flesh carton, where are we? We're present with the Lord. We're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back first, and I'm praying for that, we're all going to go. As near as I can tell, the mortality rate is still right there at 100% for everybody. Now, here's the incredible truth about that day. If you hear nothing else, hear this today. If you're a Christ follower, that's going to be the best day ever. Amen? We're going to get to see Jesus. 
I truly believe that. And the reason it's going to be the best day is because of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal just means there's a penalty. That's what it means. Substitution is just what you think. Someone took our place. Someone paid the price for that penalty. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he coined a phrase that I absolutely love. He calls it the great exchange. Jesus just swaps places with us. Luther didn't invent it. It's in the Bible. Paul wrote it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin. That's how we know it's Jesus. To be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Initially, the human race, our, our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They substituted themselves for God. In the garden, they thought they could be like God. Well, what happens on the cross? <laughs> we flip it back. God substituted himself for us. So in that horrific scene on the cross, that should have happened to me. I deserve that. But a loving God sent his son, Jesus, to endure that so I wouldn't have to. He died so that I could live. He died so that anyone who professes faith can live. Jesus endured that wrath of God so we can taste the grace of God. Jesus was separated from God so we can be reconciled to God. Christ died for our sins. Penal means there's a penalty. Substitution, Jesus exchanges places with sinful mankind. Atonement is a neat word. It's literally a word that just means we are reconciled back to God. We're reconciled. We celebrate all kind of holidays on our calendars. The little story I told earlier, we, we get that Easter and Christmas and Independence Day. For Jewish people, they have one big celebration. You know what it is? Yom Kippur. You know what Yom Kippur means? the Day of Atonement. That's the day they celebrate when the Jewish nation would deal with its sin in the sight of a holy and righteous God. They would come together. Together is pretty important. Assembly is important in this. They would come together and they'd confess their sins. They'd prepare their hearts to worship. They'd come together as God's people. And as part of this Yom Kippur ceremony, they would bring in two goats. It'd be a sacrificial goat and a scapegoat. You heard that term before? And the high priest would come in. This is a great foreshadowing of Jesus, who was our great high priest. And the high priest would come in, and he'd intercede. He'd mediate between God and the people. And the people would confess their sins to the high priest. And the high priest would pronounce the sins of the people over this first goat, this sacrificial goat. He'd name the sins of the people on the goat. And then the high priest would literally take out a knife and just slit the goat's throat. He would kill that substitutionary goat. What is that showing? The wages for sin is death. Something has to die. That sacrificial goat dies. The high priest kills it. And then they would bring out the other goat, the scapegoat. You know, this is the origin of that term. We hear that. We, we say somebody's a scapegoat. We place the blame on them. They bear the consequences. That comes from Yom Kippur. That comes from the ceremony with the high priest. Because after the scapegoat comes out, the high priest would again pronounce the sins of the people over it. And then you know what happens to the scapegoat? They let it go. It runs away, free. Except for its 
taken the sins with it. It bears the consequence that way. This is a perfect picture of what happens on the cross. Because today, if we have a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus, then he substituted himself for us on the cross. We are forgiven at that moment. And what does that mean? Our sins are taken away. That only works because Jesus is both goats. He's the sacrificial goat and he's the scapegoat. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. He's acting as our substitute. But what does he say after that? It is finished. It is finished. At that moment, he went to his death, and that's when he took our sins with him. So he served as the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. That's the beauty of this story. Christ died for our sins. That act saves those who profess faith. We'll talk more about this next week. It doesn't just save us, right, from our sin. It saves us to eternal relationship with him. And that is the greatest good news ever. We'll talk more about that next week. But I wanna close today by talking about the wrath that God spares us from by being our substitute. I think it's that wrath that caused Jesus to sweat blood. Revelation 14.10 teaches us what will happen to people who don't participate in the great exchange. And it's pretty somber. Apostle John writes, they also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Church, when we're saved, we don't have to experience God's wrath. We don't have to experience God's holy anger over our sin. Why? Because that wrath that we deserve, it's poured out on Jesus, on the cross. And Jesus knew that. And he still volunteered for that assignment, knowing full well what was gonna happen. I think that's why he sweat blood in Gethsemane, not worried about the pain of being scourged, worrying about experiencing God's wrath over our sin. I think that's what prompted him to pray a prayer that I... I guarantee I will never understand on this side of heaven. I just can't fathom it. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus 100% knows what's on the horizon. He prays this prayer. Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, God, what you want. I'm paraphrasing, so this isn't near as powerful, but Jesus is saying, I get it. I get what's gonna happen. I understand why I'm headed to the cross. So if there's another way, if there would be a different way to pay the price of sin for all mankind, if there would be something other than penal substitutionary atonement that would allow sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God, boy, now would be a great time to know because I am headed to the cross. Before they start driving the nails, yet 
Not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus takes this cup of wrath for us. He takes this cup of God's righteous anger over sin. That's what we see in Revelation 14, just this continued analogy of the cup. Got this picture in my head. Every day we're on this planet, every sin we commit or omit, it's added to this cup. Can you picture that in the presence of God? There's a cup with your name on it, with my name on it. You guys wonder why I carry around such a big cup. That's, it's got all my sin in it. There's a cup with our name on it, it holds all our sin. Now, church, here's the bottom line. One of two things is going to happen. Either we profess faith in Jesus and he drinks that cup for us on the cross or we're going to have to drink it. We're going to have to drink that cup of God's anger over sin separated from him forever. It's one of those two. That's it. Do we see why it's so important to share the good news? I'm not just flippantly saying, hey, invite somebody to Easter next week. We're going to have a big party. Do you know someone who, I don't, we don't see hearts the way God does, but do you know someone who you believe doesn't know Jesus? They need to hear the rest of the story. They need to hear the greatest good news ever told because we don't want the people we love to have to drink that cup. I pray we wouldn't wish that on our worst enemies. Come back next week for our Easter service. Invite people who need to hear that good news. And, and I pray they'll have a chance to respond to this greatest love story ever told. Amen? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Daddy, help us to process all this. This is hard. This is tough stuff. We don't often want to stop and pause and chew on the things that actually happen to Jesus the Christ. It's a little easier to preach a, a gospel of, well, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. That, that part's 100% true. I'm not denying that. But his plan included sending his son to make the way for sinful people to be reconciled back to a holy, perfect, righteous God. And God, if we benefited from that great exchange, Plant us on our faces, on our knees, God. Praying for those that we love who haven't. God, thank you for the way you love us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.